Welcome to Bible Study. It's very good to be with you again today. And this is Nick Rita, your host. I would just like to inform you that uh, Pastor Doug Batchelor, which is the director of Amazing Facts, world well-known presenter, is coming to Adelaide and Melbourne in the month of February. In Adelaide, he will be presenting five sessions about preparing for Christ's return. And the meetings will be held at 305 Brighton Road, North Brighton, Brighton Performing Arts Center. Friday, 7 of February from 7 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 8 and 9 February from 4.30 p.m. And again, Monday and Tuesday, the 10th and 11th of February from 7 p.m. If you like to book your free seat, please go to www.amazingfacts.com.au slash bookings. Text or phone 04-29377-468. Today again an amazing uh, Bible study from the book of Daniel, chapter 3 today. And uh, it's amazing to see how uh, the powerful God to whom we are uh, to serve and to give our lives is able to save even from the fiery furnace. Open the Bible if you are home and if you can or if you are driving, just uh, follow up with us as we are going to look into this uh, uh, wonderful story today. I would like to just welcome the panel and uh, thank each one of you uh, taking time to come together and to uh, share this uh, wonderful uh, message from the Bible and I would like you to be blessed today and each of our listeners to experience the same thing. Thank you, Lydia, for uh, joining us. Uh, thank God for being here to study His Word, the river of life, mm. of eternal life. Mm. And thank you, Helen, to join us too. Thank you. I agree. It is a blessing. And this study this week is just absolutely amazing, especially when we look at the times that we live in. Looking forward to it. Ken, also very happy to have you with us. Always a pleasure to be here, Nick. I really look forward to it. Ellen is uh, our facilitator preparing this study for today. And thank you, Ellen, for uh, leading us and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's always a privilege to study God's Word and it's a double privilege to be able to share it. And I hope that you enjoy this presentation that we have today. Now, last week, we studied chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, and there we learned how God gave a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, a remarkable dream, which was an outline of world kingdoms commencing at his time and going through to the end of the world and beyond, where God sets up his everlasting kingdom. We learned about how God used his faithful servant Daniel to interpret the dream. We also saw how Nebuchadnezzar came to realize that he was not the supreme ruler. God was and is. This week, we will see how God used three other faithful young men to reteach the lesson of who was supreme. It's an exciting and encouraging study, so stay with us. Helen, would you like to commence today with prayer? Yes, I'd love to. Let's pray. 
Loving Heavenly Father, it is a delight to come and to share, but it's equally, Lord, it's so exciting that you can show us what these things mean in Scripture. Pray for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, not only in us here in the panel, but everyone that listens to this today. May they sense and hear your voice in a mighty, mighty way. Lord, I just pray that what we study today will give us encouragement as we face the end times and help us to realize, yes, that you are definitely in control and that you don't want anybody to perish but to have eternal life. Lord, I pray that we will learn many lessons today that will be encouraging and that will help us to stand up like Daniel and his three friends. I pray in the loving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Helen. Well, Ken, would you like to commence a study today by reading Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1? Certainly. Uh, we're reading from the King James Version. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, cubits are not a measure that's used very much today. I think some other versions will actually give modern dimensions. Has anybody got those? Mm, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. In the shape of a... You know, it was to represent uh, an image. It was a man. An an image, a man. shape of a man, perhaps stylized. And um, why did the king set this particular image up? on the plain of Dura? I think there's a a number of reasons for that, Len. Babylon at the time was one of the biggest, if not the biggest city in the world. It was also a very beautiful city and a very powerful city. And the king, I think, had a bit of a big head and he thought, well, this is great and I want this represented outside of the city, I believe this was made. And so he, uh, he wanted to have something that he thought would last forever to certainly last a long time about just how great he and Babylon was Yes, if we remember the dream of course uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in the dream that his kingdom ended and I think you alluded to it there Ken he didn't want it to end so he's set it up himself uh, that it was all gold Mm, Yes it was I believe that he was really overriding what God had shown him the message because he wanted to be worshipped. Mm. He wanted to bring, well, from where I was looking in the study on that one, he wanted to unite the nation, but also solidify his power in centralising this, this form of worship, if you like. And, and I realised, too, that Satan's trying to do that as well, especially in, in our time. But he wanted Babylon to last forever, and you mentioned that, um, Len. He just didn't have the head of gold, he made the whole statue. It must have been awe-inspiring to see, but it was really defying God, wasn't it? Mm. Yes. You know, I will be like God, I will be worshipped like mm. God. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we don't know exactly how quick it happened after Daniel uh, exposed the dream and the significance of his dream to him. But to me, I don't understand what type of person was he that he just materialized this dream and he was so arrogant and so selfish, a very selfish and arrogant king, that he wanted to be to be really worshipped by the whole nation, and uh, young and old, uh, you know, small and big. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, worshipped in the sense of when people worshipped the image, they were in kind of effect worshipping him. Yes. And this is not an unusual thing. If you read history, you'll read how kings were also regarded as gods. And there's even a reference about uh, one of the Herods, I think it was, where people said, he's not a man, he's a god. Mm. I'd like to just uh, draw another thought here in this regard. You know, when all through the history, men ambitions are known, you know, and they uh, want to establish their ruling, particularly when a king or like a kingdom and so on and so forth. But they are not stupid too. You know, they are uh, intelligent men and wise men. That's why they are ruling in, you know. And if he will ask people to worship him, that will be very uh, arrogant and he will lose, in my opinion, contact, bond with his uh, people. But he will er if he will erect an image which will represent the empire, which will represent not only him, but everyone else there, and then you have a bigger chance to draw all those people behind you and to support you. It's a very interesting thing how Satan can work things to put together to deceive people. Mm. But the problem here is that doesn't matter who that statue represented. If that statue represented Nebuchadnezzar or represented his kingdom, mm -hmm. the one big thing was that these people, which we are going to look at and study more the, from, from Israel, they knew the living God and they have knowledge about what worship means. Mm -hmm. And probably that's the thing which we will look into as we study today, particularly this uh, chapter uh, 3 from Daniel. That, that was excellent, Nick. Just adding to that, I've seen many times where people have ridden, risen to power and the power goes to their head. Now, Daniel and his three friends, they had risen to power, but it didn't go to their head because of whom was in their life, and that was God. Yeah. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, it literally went to his head. Yes, well, we've used the word arrogant, but yes. pride would be another one. I found a comment in which was saying that Nebuchadnezzar was consumed by arrogance and uh, he wanted himself to be an object of worship. And um, in promoting such a liturgical event, the king may have intended to secure, as you, Helen, said before, the allegiance of governors, ministers, and other government officials to the program and ideology of his own empire. Well, it was quite obvious that Nebuchadnezzar hadn't learned the lesson from the dream that he had. Although it was interpreted for him, he put another interpretation on it. In other words, he was trying to prove that his kingdom, and he as the king of that kingdom, was supreme. But, um, you know, he's not the only one who challenges God's supremacy. Can you think of any ways how people challenge God's supremacy, Helen? Well, one particular way comes to my mind particularly, and that is setting aside, if not all of God's command, at least one of them in my conversation with a lot of people. And um, that's the one that says, remember, remember. And some people will put that aside and believe it's not, uh, not important. And to me, the whole Ten Commandments are important. 
God mm. gave us them for a reason. But there are other things that we can challenge God's supremacy in. You know, we, we want to take over things on this earth. And we want to do things our way. We want to, the technology, sometimes we want to go a bit further than what even God wants us to go. If you look at some of the advances in the medical field, I guess there's questions there as well. But in our own life, we can challenge God's supremacy even in our own life when we know that God wants us to do something and we deliberately go ahead and do opposite. Yeah. Or we put an idol or something that gives we spend more time with than, than with God. So it comes personally as well as in, in, in a country doing it as well. I just want to make a comment on uh, what uh, Helena was uh, sharing in regard to the Sabbath and um, giving uh, allegiance to God or uh, to man. In the day we live in, uh, lots of people are following the teachings of men. And it's amazing that even in those days, what this king was setting up, you know, uh, the whole people in his kingdom, they were prepared to come and do what the king asked. And I believe that there were people there who had the knowledge of the living God because Israel was still present around and they, would have, they could have heard about the miracles of God. But they were choosing to put aside all those things and follow the teachings of man. And I'm wondering if today is not very similar when we have so clear in the Bible, in the Word of God, things like, as you just mentioned, Helen, about the Sabbath, and most of the people ignore that thing, believing that what they think is right, it's more valuable than what God is requiring. Mm. I just thought to, to mention that and maybe contemplate on uh, those things. Okay, well, who was invited, or perhaps better put, ordered to the dedication of the statue, Helen? Well, let me read, if I may, from Daniel 3, um, verses 2 and 3, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and it says here, Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, and magistrates. Now, that was seven groups of people particularly mentioned, but he went on and said, And all the provincial office officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. And so that's exactly what they did. All these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it was really all the important people of the kingdom needed to be there. So how many people do you think were there? Oh, I, I can't visualise. I mean, it was on the plain of Durin. It was a fairly big area. I, I imagine other people were there apart from the officials. So it could even mount to thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Have Probably you any idea, Len? Hey? Have you any idea? Yeah. Well, I've oh. never been to the Plan of Jura, but I imagine there were thousands. Yeah. Anyhow, there was an instruction given to the crowd. There they were assembled. There was the image over in the distance. To one side was the uh, burning fiery furnace, which was going. It wasn't out. Lydia, would you like to read from Daniel chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and tell us what the instruction was. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, all people, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship 
the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So all the people, as it said, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, they were meant to bow down and worship the image. So King Nebuchadnezzar uh, materialized this, that the statue became an idol. And as people were, were worshiping this statue, the idol, they worship all the gods in that empire and also him, himself. Okay. So here they had a new god, if you like, mm. to worship. And when the orchestra struck up the note, yep. so to speak, the people would bow down. Is there anything wrong with that, Nick? Bowing down to an idol? Nebuchadnezzar, he was exposed. In the previous chapter, we, we talked about that Daniel came to him and revealed to him the dream and so on and so forth. And he himself declared that the God of Israel is the only living God. He must have that knowledge and understanding of who God is. But in this chapter here, we are facing another face of his uh, life, you know. He is setting up this statue. I'd just like to read a couple of verses from um, the book of um, Isaiah, if I can, Len. Sure. And that's from uh, chapter 44, verses 13 up to 18. It says here that the craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedar for himself and takes the cypress and the oak and secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourished it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worship it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With his half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and say, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worship it. Prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. This is an amazing passage to just compare with uh, what we are just talking here mm. in Daniel. May I just read that in another version from verse 18 onwards? Mm. It says, and because I was thinking this as you were reading it out, I thought, how silly, how stupid. And verse 18 in the New Living Translation says, such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed, they cannot see. Their minds are shut, they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat, used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god. Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? Mm. It's no wonder God said in the commandments we should not make 
a graven or a carved image and bow down and worship mm. it, which is, of course, one of the key points in this um, story we're doing today. Mm. Now, Ken, would you read Daniel 3, 6? Because in there it tells the consequence of disobeying the king's command to bow down and worship the image. Sure. So reading uh, Daniel uh, 3 and verse 6 in the King James Version again. And whoso falleth not down and worship shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Now this is, uh, I actually find this this whole story in this particular really quite amazing because we have King Nebuchadnezzar who is the king of all these lands, obviously a very, very powerful king in this amazing city. He's gathered together all his leaders and sub-leaders and everyone that's working for him and he's given them a command. Now, back in those days, if you didn't follow the command of the king, usually you'd lose your head or be thrown in jail perhaps the rest of your life. But in this particular case, he's even gone to the extent of creating this amazing furnace, this really big furnace, and this thing is is, uh, is going, the flames are rolling, and it's been uh, well fed with wood, uh, just to encourage and make sure that no one is going to stand when the music plays and everyone has to bow down. Okay, well, the furnace was probably used for melting the gold. Mm. Yes, Helen? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think this furnace was an industrial furnace that was there anyway uh, for making their bricks and what have you. It wasn't just an ordinary um, heating the house furnace or uh, something to cook on. So this alone would have been enough to put fear into people's minds and hearts, you know, this huge, big furnace. And they could see it because the flames were coming out. It was designed to burn whatever went in it. Mm. So... This was really forced worship. Do it. If you don't, you lose your life, and mm-hmm. you're not going to lose it in a very pleasant way. Now, Helen, would you read Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through to 12, and I'll ask you some questions afterwards. Sure. 8 through to 12, New Living Translation says, But some of the astrologers, Chaldeans, went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a burning furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, who complained? The astrologers. Chaldeans were known to be the astrologers. Okay. Yes. Now... Just a while back before, mm-hmm. when the king had the dream, what was going to happen to the astrologers? They were going to be put to death because they couldn't interpret the dream. And who rescued them? Daniel. Mm. Do you so think there was jealousy here? I think there mm-hmm. must have been a lot of jealousy. Mm. Mm. And um, so what did they tell the king? That they refused, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Abednego refused to bow down. Mm. Even though the furnace was there, even though the king had given the command, they refused to bow down. That must have taken some guts or conviction. Was this furnace prepared beforehand or after that? Well, was the, it already the Bible burning? doesn't tell us, but I suspect 
that was one of the furnaces used to melt the gold because the gold would have to be carried in a molten state to be poured into a into a mold to set hard so you couldn't do that if the furnace was miles away so it had to be right on the spot that's what i think now i, I don't know the melting point of gold but it's fairly high so when worshiping time came why was the fern the uh, furnace already burning well it was burning it for that occasion for if anybody disobeyed the king uh-huh. here it is uh-huh. You've got so it was prepared beforehand lesson. yeah mm. talking about fire it's something very significant in the bible because a uh, lot of times fire it's representing also the presence of god oh, now when uh, you know the antediluvians after after the flood god promised the humankind not to be destroyed again by water and by flooding but it's interesting that in the bible it talks a lot about the the fire and the destruction you know how fire will will be present all through the end of the history of this world mm. and the parallels here it's very interesting because we know that behind all of this is the satan and he knows a lots of things what uh, you know what happens uh, around and he is setting everything up and fire here was very uh, uh, interesting that was combined if you like with worship and if you don't worship me you will end up in being destroyed mm, just just very quickly remember elijah on the mountain top who brought the fire down god god and satan always wants to do what god does mm. so here we have a situation where the people bowed down except Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego then the astrologers reported this to the king and they said they were not bowing down so when the king heard about this ken how did he react well the king was very very angry and uh, i'll just read uh, daniel swiggy and, and verses 13 to 15 then nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, and not worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, palsy, and dusmer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which i have made well but if you worship not you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace and who is that god that shall deliver you out of my hands all right well now i find this rather remarkable because nebuchadnezzar gave these three young men a second chance there was nothing mentioned earlier about second chance i don't think a second chance was on the the agenda Yet, panel, he gave them a second chance. Why? Because he was thinking that they were afraid of that fire, and they will change their minds, Possibly. and they worship. And they were. They will worship the king and the statue. Possibly. Mm. I I think he was stunned that somebody would disobey for a start. He expected full, complete obedience. Yes. And these three young men, along with Daniel, were respected in in his kingdom. And I think it really interesting. He actually was mocking God 
when he was saying then what God will be able to rescue from my power. Mm. So here we have another example of his arrogancy and he thought himself above God. But I think he also wanted to know whether they would still do it and he allowed them that second chance. Okay. Maybe because he was mocking God. What did you think? Okay. Okay. I, I was going to say exactly the same thing that there, there may be two angles. This one, of course, was, I believe, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar perhaps realised, well, well, these actually are really good leaders and wise men, so perhaps they've made a mistake, I'll give them a second chance. But also, as Helen said, perhaps God was also trying their faith to see, well, when it actually came mm-hmm. to the bit and the king said, well, I'm afraid you are going to be burnt if you don't do what you're told, would they still stand up? And they did. Okay, well, you've all got a different idea than me, and I'm not saying your idea's wrong. I think King had a great deal of respect for these young men from his previous experience when Daniel interpreted the dream. And you remember, Daniel asked that these three young men also be considered in the king's um, rewards. They were put in charge of the province of Babylon. Do you reckon, uh, Len, dictator would like to be known that he's a, di- a dictator or he would love to think that the people actually are committed to to himself and to his uh, ruling because that's one of the things here I mentioned a bit earlier uh, I believe the king was wise enough not to just uh, react quickly you know he said look I'm actually a good guy you know I can offer uh, you a, a second chance and all those things could be, you know, uh, true, uh, him having respect about, uh, of them. But I believe there was also other people in the kingdom. Uh, th- this kingdom was not only ruled by uh, these young three men and Daniel. There were some other people there and highly regarded and uh, respected. And he will have uh, uh, appreciation about that. But God, I think, can just allude to that, was also there to make out of this a lesson to be learned for us also today, not only for that time. Whatever happened there was not only for that time, because mm. God's presence was there to give us an object lesson for us today. Too. Mm. I'm just going to challenge something you said, Nick, when you said, you know, that he was a wise king and, you know, he thought about it. In the scripture, it said he actually flew into a rage. Mm. And and I think when he had time to sort of realize the, who these people were in front of him, that's when I think he allowed them, out of respect, as we said, out of respect to have a second chance. But I think at the, the first start, he was so angry, he wasn't thinking straight at all. You know, until he had that couple of seconds. And I believe that God led it. There is a key statement that the king made there, Lydia. Helen said it before, but I would like us to to refocus on it. What was that key statement that he said? He said to those three young men, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Here he was saying, I am the ultimate. Exactly. I am the supreme. Yeah. Your life is in my hands. Yes. So what had the king forgotten? He forgotten ex- uh, beforehand when Daniel revealed his dream and his its interpre- interpretation. And we don't know exactly how long it took uh, in this mid-time, but I think, do you think he forgotten or he intentionally did it? Well, probably. 
probably that. Yes. Probably that. Mm. So, Helen, in verses 16 to 18, how did Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answer the king? I love this bit. Mm, Just before I get into that, let me just say that I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was convinced that God was powerful from the dream, Mm. but it was very short-lived. Yeah. In in his belief of Daniel's God, he looked at him like Daniel's God. But let me go to what you asked for in Daniel three sixteen to 18, again from the New Living Translation. It says here, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Was that a diplomatic answer? Well, it wasn't what Nebuchadnezzar wanted, number one, and it probably wasn't politically correct. But I think diplomacy came in here because they were still acknowledging, you know, he will rescue us from your power and your majesty. And they kept calling him your majesty. So they weren't downplaying Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that was a diplomatic part, but they still stood for God. It was still a slap in the face it for was. the king. Yes. I think it was through faith. So these three young men, they had such a, uh, a strong faith in God that they said, even if God will not rescue us, we prefer to be burned alive. We don't care about it because we love God and we serve God with all our might. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I just want to add a, a, another little bit about this, and that is, again, if you put yourself in the shoes mm-hmm. of Nebuchadnezzar and you have these hundreds, possibly thousands of people standing around, and these uh, three men come up and they're not going to bow down to you, the king could also be thinking, well, if I let these three men go, maybe other people will sta- start and perhaps rebel against me, so we had to be firm. Yeah. Can, can I just mention, Len, that these men could have made excuses. I used to think about this years ago, and I used to think, well, they could have actually just bent down and did up their shoelaces, yes. but still worship God in their heart. Mm-hmm. And, and I was interested to find a list of excuses that they could have given. We will fall down, but not actually worship the idol. We won't become idol worshippers, but we'll worship it this one time, and then ask God for forgiveness. The king has absolute power. We must obey him. God will understand. The king appointed us. We owe this to him. This is a foreign land, so God will excuse us for following in the customs of the land our ancestors set up idols in God's temple this isn't half as bad we're not hurting anybody if we get ourselves killed and some pagans take our high positions they won't help our people in exile and I thought how many times do we as humans make excuses and I believe it will be the same at the end of time we will make excuses whereas these three guys they didn't make excuses at all Well, I don't want you to include me in the excuses, people. (laughs) Um, What was the issue at stake here? The the issue was, who do you worship? That was the main issue that we're looking at. And what Helen was just saying, there's the issue of obedience, in other words, living by your principles, regardless of the circumstances, or compromising them. And you were just talking about... uh, bowing down and asking mm-hmm. forgiveness afterwards. My Uncle Herb once attended a church service where the people were kneeling down, standing up, kneeling down. He didn't know what to do, so he stayed halfway. 
So it looked like he was kneeling down and it looked like he was standing up. That was a compromise. Yeah. We must not compromise our principles. There's no sitting on Otherwise, the Otherwise, it's mm. like letting a white ant into your house and it'll start eating the wood. Good yeah, example. I, I heard quite a few times, like, we asked them, when we use these things, it's, to me, it looks a little bit more like our power. What I believe, they did what they did because they are truly following God. They yes. could not go other way. There was not like in their mind, I don't believe in their mind there was such a thing that oh, we may have an excuse here or we may uh, uh, do something there. They were 100% committed to God and whatever flow out from their life and their experience is what we see in this testimony. Mm. Can I just share a very quick testimony on this as well? A personal one like you did, Len. When I started to come to know God and to know the truths in the Bible, I was in a dance band and we used to play a lot at the weekends, Friday night, Saturday night, you know, we played at weddings and all sorts of things. And when I saw the light of the Sabbath, I just knew I could not go with the band on Friday night. And so I said to them, I, I can't come along. And I was challenged because one night I had sat out of a few pieces and I had been talking to a young young gentleman there and we got on the subject of religion and it was thrown at me and I believe this was Satan's temptation. Yes, but you can be such a witness when you're here. Now, what was I going to do? Use that as an excuse or keep God's true Sabbath and I decided to keep God's true Sabbath and he's blessed me ever since. On a personal scale, if we cave in and submit to temptation and or social pressure, because social pressure can be uh, a very hard thing to combat, like if young kids and they teenagers and somebody's kids around them are smoking, come on, have one, it won't hurt you. It's hard to stand up and say no. And um, for any young people especially who do say no, that requires a lot of intestinal fortitude. Can I say something there? Yes. Even if they have fallen into temptation, there is a fabulous promise in the Bible in 1 John 1 9. It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe that's an amazing promise. You don't presume on it, but it's a wonderful promise for us should you give in. But mm. come closer to God and he will. He said, he said, submit to God, resist the devil. So that if we keep compromising our principles, what do you think will happen where, where our names will be entered in the books of heaven? Will our names be... Look, I think if we're going to habitually sin, we are actually, you know, we're sinning over and over. And in fact, one of the texts in the Bible says that, you know, reaping and reaping and reaping and, and habitually, you know, sinning, um, then we are very much in danger. Yeah, Revelation 20:15. I believe covers this. May I read that? I'd love you to. Okay, Revelation 20, verse 15. And it says here, again in the New Living Translation, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, that's something we don't want to happen, is it? We want our names recorded. In the Lamb's In the Lamb's Book, book of, of Life. Absolutely. To be given eternal life. Yes, well, while you've got Revelation there, Helen, yes. would you like to read um, chapter 13, verses 11 to 17? Here we have a parallel 
in later times referring to this very story we're talking about today. Absolutely. 11 to 17 says, Then I saw another beast come out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast. Uh, Yeah, worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast. Interesting, isn't it? Who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so it could speak then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die he required everyone small and great rich and poor free and slave to be given a mark on the right hand or on their forehead and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark which was neither which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name so it's a very similar scene to what we hear in Daniel there is there is an image that we we're required to bow to at the end of time just in the time of Daniel with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego if they refused to what was going to happen you know they were going to die and in here in in verse 15 he said the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die so there was a death decree back then and there will be a death decree, regardless of who you are, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to worship that beast. So there are many parallels oh, absolutely. two yeah. things. But what's the big issue? Worship. It's worship. Absolutely. Worship. Not climate change? No, not climate change. Oh. All about worship. All right. Okay. And whom we worship. Okay, let's come back to the story. Daniel three nineteen to 23, if you please, Lydia. Then... Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, Turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now, I'm thinking here that Nebuchadnezzar heated that furnace seven times more. I mean, I think it's a maybe a figurative way to emphasize the maximum heat because um, he wanted to make sure that no one would escape uh, such a heat and a more intense fire should kill them in immediately. And uh, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar intended to make their execution a public display of the cost of contesting his authority. So before he was giving them giving them a second chance, they stated their case and they said, doesn't matter, yeah. we're not going to bow down and worship. So they stood firm. immediately then 
they were going to be burned alive. Ken? I just wanted to add a little thing here I think is somewhat significant, and that is the fire was heated seven times greater than what it was originally. Well, as we know, seven is God's number. And the other interesting thing, I believe, is that the people thrown, the soldiers thrown the people into the furnace, they were consumed. Now, this was definitely going to leave no doubt whatsoever when these three boys walked out again that it just wasn't fluke that they landed somewhere in the furnace so there was no heat. This was a real, real consuming fire. Yes, the people whose job it was, some of the strongest, bravest warriors, mm. they got burnt, even not being in the fire, just from the radiant heat from the fire. One commentary that I read stated that they thought it was heated up to about 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, mm. well, that's about the uh, temperature of an oxytorch, mm. and that melts metal with ease. Yeah, Anyhow, would you, would you like to read on verse 24 through to 27? Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king, he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of God of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Okay, well... This was a bit of a turn of events, yeah. eh? Because here, against an impossible delivery, there was delivery. Yes. King just could not believe his eyes. And Ken, when all these other people had examined them, what did they find? Well, they find that uh, firstly, not a hair of their head had been harmed. Uh, there was their clothes weren't singed. Uh, there's no smoke smell upon them there it's as if they've just been out of the shower and <laughs> were all nice <laughs> and fresh yeah. all right. they're not yes, touched by, by, by fire at there's, all there was no evidence of fire on them exactly. yes Helen there was one part that was burned and that was the rope that was holding oh, them yes. Yes. And, and I found that interesting when I thought about that that only the rope that bound them had been burned and I thought mm -hmm. you know no human can bind us if God wants us to be free mm. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Now, we ascribe this miracle to God, right? Yeah. How did God save them, Ken? Well, he, I mean, he is the God who created us in the first place, and he obviously created these three people, and uh, just through his amazing power that we cannot understand, he just uh, had his angels around him, and, of course, Jesus was there with them. Yeah, Nick? A very simple uh, way to put it also is that Jesus himself came among them to save them. was not just, uh, you know, God could uh, do anything, you know, could just... But he came 
among them. And I think that was amazing because uh, we talked about uh, before that uh, many people believe that God is somewhere up high there and he's doing his own business and we are down here uh, struggling ourselves. Actually, God is with us. And I think that's very important. Okay. Yeah, I think one of the other very interesting things also is that when Nebuchadnezzar looked into this fiery furnace and he saw Jesus walking around, of course he didn't know it was Jesus, I'm guessing, but he said, one that looks like the Son of God. So he must have been glowing greater than the heat of the fire. Mm. Yes, we don't know. There's a lot of things we have to assume here. But while Ken was bringing up that point, probably is the right time to just mention something here. We are witnessing here a battle, if you like, and there are, in this case, two groups, or at least, uh, you know, uh, the representatives of God who gave their heart to God, committed to God, obeying God, these three young men, and the other one who's touched in his heart, who heard about the living God, who's experiencing some conversion in his life, but he's still struggling to let it go. Struggling to let it go. Uh, he was in between the world and what the world offers and God. And I can see in Nebuchadnezzar's expression that he was not just like a, if I will compare him with the other Chaldeans which came in to accuse these three young men, they were just brutal, you know, they just didn't have anything in mind, uh, you know, humanly. But the king, I think he was fighting, if you like, with on what he was exposed right from the beginning with the dream. Yes, he was having a battle with himself, really. Mm. Helen, let's go down to verse 28. Would you read that? And I'd like you to just comment about what the king said, having read that verse. But let me just comment, too. It's not just the three men and the king. All those other people that were called to, to bow down to him were witnessing. What a fantastic witness it was. Okay. So you want me to read 3 verse 28. Thank you. New Living Translation says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. So what was he really saying? Well, he kept, well, he was virtually saying their own god saved them. But he wasn't acknowledging it was God that we should all worship. I think what he was literally um, saying to the people, you know, this God is very powerful. Add him to your list of gods. No, seriously, because that's what they did. They had multiple gods, whereas there is only one God, Scripture tells us. And he, he hadn't quite grasped that, I don't think, but I could be wrong. But... You know, he was he was so amazed. I would imagine he was startled. How many of us would look in a furnace and, and put, know that three had gone in there and there were four? You know, and, and they were unharmed. I mean, you'd almost blink your eyes and rub your eyes and say, can I believe my eyes? What's happening here? So, yeah, I, I believe that he was saying their God saved them, but he hadn't actually acknowledged it. It was the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but not his God. Okay, so he came to that realisation mm -hmm. that God was supreme. And I would like to add this, listeners, when you are in God's hands, you are safe. 
When you are not in God's hands, you're not safe. There's a statement I read a long time ago, Lynn, that said, with Jesus, without Jesus, it's a hopeless end, but with him, it's endless hope. Yeah. Mm. Lydia, would you read verse 29 of um, Daniel 3? Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. So uh, it's amazing that he acknowledges again that God is sovereign. Mm. Honored God or else. And Mm. yet he forgot again. Yes. Yes. And it took a very Mm -hmm. difficult lesson for him to come to the final conclusion that God in heaven, the creator God, is supreme and not him. Mm -hmm. Well now, what was the result for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Ken? Well, in verse 30 we read, Then the king, who was Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So they were richly rewarded for what they did. They were rewarded for their faithfulness. Yes. And I've heard of situations where people have been despised because they would not break their principles. But also I've heard of people, uh, say employers, who've realised that those people who wouldn't break principles are trustworthy, good people Mm. to have. Well, this is a wonderful story and I know there are a whole series of questions we could ask about why did God perform this miracle and save these men in that situation, yet there have been martyrs burned at the stake in their millions who who died as a result where God didn't deliver them. I don't want us to try to answer that question now, but it's something worthwhile thinking about. I have an answer. But before we close today, I want to ask you, panel, what can we learn and apply from this particular story? Now, it's open for anybody to to share. Yes, Ken? Well, I'll, I'll kick this off and say there's many lessons we can learn from this. Firstly, there is a God in heaven. There are no other gods but God Almighty. He rules over this earth, and he is especially interested in all people on this earth, but those that follow his commandments and do his will, he particularly cares for. Yeah. Helen? God is in control. He is supreme. But not like King Nebuchadnezzar, who was forcing the people to bow down and worship. God never forces us. No. But he will reward us, our faithfulness. And I believe the story here was radical faithfulness, if you like. Yeah. You know, standing up for God in the most radical situation and we need to do the same yeah i like that yes Lydia. yeah for me touch my heart that the true faith of these young people daniel's friends is measured in this story by the quality of their relationship with god and um, it's resulting up in absolute confidence in god so authentic faith does not seek to bend god's will to conform to our will. Rather, it surrenders our will to the will of God. Okay, yes, I like all these things that have been said. Did you have something to share, Nick? Yes, I'd just like to mention that uh, as in those days, 
when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were uh, standing for God, and they were in a battle uh, zone, if you like, in a war zone, uh, were the same. If you are following God, you are part of that conflict, if you like, in between good and evil. And we are called, each one of us, to stand for God, and God will never let us down. God is in control, as was mentioned here, but the question is, am I part of that picture? Can I just add to that, if you don't mind? We, we are saying, you know, we're focusing a lot on what these these guys were faithful in that, and that's very important. But God here, in Daniel 3, I've written down this note, is the God of both radical grace and radical commitment. The radical grace of God, God that required that even his death on the cross... That was the grace. But that brings out a response of radical human commitment even unto death. And I believe we should not wait until things come upon us. We should be immersed in the word now. Now is the day of salvation. So that, so when these things happen, I don't think it was just a, an instant response from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Their lives had been going through that way and so had Daniel's. One thing there is that they set their minds long before mm. and dear listeners it's our hope that you will set your minds to obey God rather than man and prepare yourself so that when your loyalty is tested you like Shadrach, Meshach Abednego and Joshua of old and others you will be determined to serve and obey the Lord no matter what we'll close with prayer Ledger if you wouldn't mind Glorious Father in heaven Thank you so much for this amazing story of these young people that stood faithful to you. Father, help us to remain loyal and faithful ambassadors to you, to your principles and not compromise, to believe that you have everything in control, that you are the only one, the answer to every question the only one object of worship because you are the only true God, the Creator. Father, please help us to honor you as the sovereign God. Let us not be doubtful and help us, Father, that to look forward to your reward to your faithfulness to us, to your love and eternal love for us, to see you face to face and uh, remain with you eternally. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I would just like to inform you that uh, Pastor Doug Bachelor, which is the director of Amazing Facts, world well-known presenter is coming to Adelaide and Melbourne in the month of February. In Adelaide, he will be presenting five sessions about preparing for Christ's return. And the meetings will be held at 3.05 Brighton Road, North Brighton, Brighton Performing Arts Centre. Friday, 7 of February from 7 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 8 and 9 February, from 4.30 p.m. And again, Monday and Tuesday, the 10th and 11th of February, from 7 p.m. If you like to book your free seat, 
please go to www.amazingfacts.com.au slash bookings text or phone 04 29377 468